Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 82. This time, Pippin and I will be talking about what we've been up to in the past couple of months, uh, some things uh, that worked out for us, some things that we struggled with. Pippin, what have you been up to, man? Well, it's been, I think, almost a month and a half to two months since our last episode when we interviewed Matt Mullenweg. Um, so quite a bit has actually happened in that month, a month and a half. I kind of forget how fast things move until you look back and, and think, that wasn't very long ago. And then you look at all the different things that happened in that time. So we've had, um, we've had three major updates that we pushed out in the last couple of days. Actually, all this week. I think two of them went live yesterday and one the day before. That were all the culmination of anywhere from one to six months of work. All right, let me give you a quick backstory. Five years ago, we started Easy Digital Downloads. And like a lot of people in the WordPress world, we were very excited about what custom post types allowed us to do. And there was this general uh, philosophy that proliferated the WordPress development world that you should use custom post types for anything and everything. And so we used custom post types and post meta to store transactional data for easy digital downloads, payment records, logs, etc. Well, that was five years ago. As a lot of people who have used an e a WordPress e-commerce plugin, whether you're talking EDD or WooCommerce or any of the others that also use custom post types or any similar scenario, we've discovered that there are significant problems and side effects posed by putting that data in that database. It basically comes down to you're storing a whole lot of data in a super inefficient manner that in a way that it was never designed to be used for. You're, you're putting a square into a round hole, or it's what you're trying to do, basically. The reason we did it, same reason everybody else did it, is that it was super, super easy to do. There was almost zero learning curve to do it, and we could do it. Anyway, that was five years ago. We've had serious, there's been a lot of serious problems caused by it, especially with performance and scaling. Well, for the last two years, we've been planning how to get that data out how to move it into custom database tables that are precisely designed for the schema that we need, precisely designed for the purpose that the data has, what it is, where it needs to be stored, what we need to store, how we need to store it, how, what kind of relationships we need, etc. We've been working on solely planning this out for two years, and yesterday we shipped the first one, the first migration. So we have a plugin called Commissions that allows uh, store owners to track commission earnings for vendors on their website. So if you have a website that has products from multiple vendors, you can track earnings through this Commissions plugin. All of those records were stored as a post type, just like um, a lot of other data inside of EDD and, and related plugins. So we shipped our first, the first beta of version 3.4 yesterday and it includes a migration into a custom table designed specifically for the purpose of commission tracking. We first started testing this about three week weeks ago on our own sites. We first did it on a very small site that had a little bit of data, a few thousand records at most, and we tested the migration. And then we tested also like just the general functionality of the plugin, like after the data is migrated, does everything still work? And then we tested the migration. And then we also, uh, we've been working on building a backwards compatibility layer. And then when all that was done and everything was working on that small site, 
we put it onto our big site, easydigitaldownloads.com. So our main store site has been running this custom database table for commission records for two weeks now. Anyway, so far it's been a super successful project. Cool, um, yeah. So did well, you guys find it really challenging to do this release to, to make sure that everything's backwards compatible or was it not that bad? Well, okay, so yes and no. I mean, the, the first, I think there's a couple of major challenges. Your, your first major challenge is how do you successfully get all the data migrated safely? Not only to make sure that you have data integrity, but also make sure like, is this going to work on low-end hosting accounts? That was one challenge. That, that was definitely difficult. However, it's something that we've been doing a lot of in the last three years We've, we've got pretty solid batch processing and, and upgrade scripts that we can use now that take care of that. Okay, so first of all, let me tell you what we did for backwards compatibility. We, we built a complete layer. So all of the data used to live in, in the WP Post and the WP Post meta. We tried to look at all of the data that other plugins or people, developers, might be querying and they might be using. And we wanted to make sure that those queries still worked even when the data did not exist inside of the WordPress post table anymore. So if, for example, if you call get post meta on a meta key that was associated with an EDD commission post entry, and that data no longer exists, your query will still work. So we wanted to build a backwards compatibility layer that made sure that nobody's data became inaccessible, even if they were using the old API. That was challenging, mostly in the trying to predict what people are doing. The actual compatibility layer is not that challenging. That's pretty simple, honestly. All you're doing is rerouting queries. The problem is that you really do have to try to predict what cases you need to account for. You can say, well, we have these known meta keys. We know where that data used to live and we know where the data lives now. We can do that. But what if somebody has registered their own custom meta key? And we don't have any way to know about that. We also have to, we have to then think, okay, maybe we can provide a way for developers to register a compatibility key. So like to say, hey, I have an old meta key. I want you to reroute my calls for me. Okay, we can do that. We built that. I want to, what about when somebody tries to update an old meta value that no longer exists? What happens? Well, it just works. That was challenging making sure that all of that kind of stuff happens. Um, so that's a compatibility layer that you've added to the get post meta, update post meta, delete post meta, those. So there's hooks inside those WordPress functions. And so you've hooked into those and, and you're looking for specific keys. And I guess you're probably looking up the post that's being uh, referenced uh-huh. and to check that it's an EDD post type. I guess. Um, yes, but okay. keep in mind that that so, data doesn't exist anymore because once it's migrated out, it's deleted. So you're not keeping a record of that ID, like what it used to we be? We keep a legacy ID. We have that right. store. That is, that is there, but it doesn't right. belong in WP Post anymore. Right. So, right. But, but is that what you do? Yeah, yeah, we basically look, look up to that. say, hey, is this a legacy right. ID? Okay, we need to move right. it over. Right. And because you have that in a custom table in its own... Uh, column, I'm assuming, then it's a nice quick lookup, I'm guessing? Yeah, it's pretty easy to look it up. Yeah, okay, that's pretty So, um, so far it's been pretty successful. Our, so for a test site, 
we migrated 36,000 um, records. And that migration took about 30 minutes to do, maybe 45. It was kind of cool. We, we, we looked at the stats. And when we finished the migration, our amounts were off by like one penny. And then we tried to, no, sorry, they, they were off by like $10. And we're wondering, where did the $10 come from? Well, what we realized is that we were doing this on a live site and we had a sale come through during our migration. And so the existing, even as we were migrating that data, it, it still worked. It put that new, that new sale got recorded in the new table while we were inserting all of this old back history into it. And at first it freaked us out because we're like, where, where did it come from? Like, why do we have extra? And it turns out it worked perfectly and we had everything down to, down to the penny, down to the exact number of records, et cetera. This is a one piece of a much larger project. Our project for 2017 was to get all of our data out of custom tables. And we have, we basically have four sets of data. Out, that, out of that, the post tables, you mean? Out of the post right? table. Yeah, no, sorry. And into, into custom, custom tables. tables. Yes. And so there's basically four major sets of data. There's commission records, there's license keys, there's log entries, and there's payment records. This is our first one to do because it's the smallest. And so it was, if something's going to go wrong, we'd rather it happen here. So this being the first one, we're then going to be able to do, do our next ones. We'll do license keys, we'll do payment records, and we'll do logs. All of those will happen during this year still. Well, because of the old database schema where you're using WP Post and WP Post Meta, and those tables are not designed for this kind of data, what it really means is that you have really severe bloating of your database. As an example, one quote unquote one entry in the database in the old schema would actually take up 11 rows in your database or maybe 20 rows or maybe five rows because of all the metadata stored as separate rows that really should belong in its own column. So when we ran this migration, we moved 36,000 records and doing that allowed us to delete over 250,000 rows from the database. And that's just, that's just the, that's the smallest of our four data sets. So when we do our next ones, we're going to delete another three to 500,000 rows from our database. And this is, this is just our database. This is not counting everybody else's who have much bigger sites than us. And then when we do the next one, we're going to delete a million rows from the database. Right. It's crazy. What, what is your strategy? Or maybe you haven't even thought about this yet. I don't know. Um, about taking out the backwards compatibility layer. Is that ever going to come out? Or are you just going to yeah, leave it in it'll, there? It'll for... probably come out at some point. Um, or at right. minimum, we'll put it in there to throw hard notices if, to get it, see when it's used, make sure does that- it, Does it throw well, deprecated if, notices for now? Or? Right now, if you have debug on and you're signed in as an admin, you will get a doing it wrong notice. But it, it, it only happens if you're logged in as an admin and debug is enabled because we don't want to cause any unexpected behavior for customers. But uh, yeah, so I think, I think eventually we will absolutely hard deprecate them to the point where they, they either, maybe they don't work and they always throw notice because if we've migrated the data and you still have the old methods in place a year and a half later, it's time to get those fixed. So I don't know if it's a year, I don't know if it's two years, but yes, it will happen. Yeah, eventually. Clean up time. Yep. yep. Yeah. The migration routine looks like 
Is, does that just reload the page or is it Ajax or? It is, uh, so there's two ways to run this. So our, our standard upgrade routine inside of EDD uses a combination of Ajax and page reloads to do a batch processing that can, even on slow servers, can go through tens of thousands of steps. Um, oh, is it the same library that uh, Drew is on talking on this very program talking about? <laughs> very similar. The one so when Drew okay. came on a few months ago to talk about batch processing and affiliate WP, the batch processor that he built was um, used some of the EDD batch processing as a starting point. Right, but it's not it's not the same one, but it is similar. Gotcha. Uh, but we also added the option to run the migration via WPCLI, which is definitely the recommended way. Yeah, I love that. that that's that's a smart move because, yeah. yeah, if you have a giant site, like you don't want to have to do it via the UI. Like, no, no. You're I just mean, asking for trouble. Yeah, like our site, which was, it ha so we, we moved 36,000 commission records, removed 230,000 records from the database. Um, that took us about 30 to 45 minutes via WPCLI. If we had done that in the UI, it probably would have been three hours easily. So you guys didn't take your site down temporarily to no, run this? No, we ran it live. Oh, man. We wanted to make sure you that guys... it worked live. Yeah, yeah. You guys are gutsy, man. <laughs> we tested it on our staging site first. This is big, a big, big step for you guys. I, I think this is going to be a huge advantage over the other e-commerce plugins that are out there. Because, I mean, are there any other e-commerce plugins that that actually use custom tables? Like, WP Commerce does. They've used custom tables since day okay. one. Okay. Yeah, and it was really controversial, wasn't it? It they? was, right. <laughs> they are actually, I believe, and Justin, if you're listening, I'm sorry if I'm wrong on this, but I believe WP Commerce was actually one of the reasons that a lot of people preached for using custom tables for all of this kind of data because they're like, why would you use custom tables? That's wrong. Just use the natural WordPress APIs. See, don't do what WP Commerce is doing. And now we realized X years later, wow, what a horrible mistake this was. WP Commerce, you were right all along. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a long time to wait for vindication yeah. though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, so we're, we're really happy to have this update out. If you're interested in reading about it, go to easydigitaldownloads.com slash development. And it's the EDD Commission's 3.4 release. And we're going to be doing four more of these, three or four more of these in the next six months. So if you're interested, by the end of 2017, we want to have all of our data out, out of custom post types, with the one exception of we're not going to move products out because a product is makes sense as a post. Anyway, that's been the first of our major projects. Brad, what's been your most one of your recent projects in the last month and a half since we talked last? I just wrote an article uh, for our blog and I had to learn some stuff. So, and it was about uh, creating your own certificate authority, which is, which I didn't even know about. So like, I don't know, a couple months ago, I wrote a post about how to create your own self-signed certificates and install them into your local web server uh, for local development so that you can work with HTTPS locally. And one of the comments, they said, uh, oh, you could also set up uh, your own certificate authority so that you didn't have to add the certificate to Mac OS X keychain or, or uh, any other of your devices so that you only have to add your certificate, your certificate authority certificate that one time. And then any certificates that you sign with that CA 
will just work. They'll just be accepted. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds so much better than, than having to add. Every time you, you add a new site to have to create a certificate, but then also add it to your keychain or uh, any other devices. Uh, it's just a huge pain in the butt. So you just do it once when you, you have a certificate authority. So that, that was, it turned out to be like really easy, actually. Um, it's super easy to create your own certificate authority. It sounds like it's really hard, right? Like, because I mean, like VeriSign, you know, has been like the certificate authority for ages. Um, and we only recently got, you know, the free one, Let's Encrypt. And, I, you know, Amazon is now a certificate authority. Just, you know, fairly recently they became one. Right. Um, <laughs> I can't compete with Amazon. How could I be a certificate authority? Yeah, exactly. Well, so so the, the, the kind of uh, mechanics of it are super simple, though. It's just like you run a few commands in the command line and, and it outputs a few files and voila, you, you are now a certificate authority. The trick, though, is to get that um, certificate <laughs> on every machine in the world. That's the hard part, right? Because, you know, VeriSign, Let's Encrypt, like their certificates are bundled with, you know, Mac OS X or Firefox or, or whatever. Like they, they're included in the software that, that needs them, that needs to recognize them as uh, certificate authorities. So... So yeah, you become a certificate authority, but not really, right? You 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 have the the ingredients, but not, you know, you still need to get it on every system in the world, right? So, have you ever looked into that kind of stuff? I've I've never set up a signing authority for myself. I've done self signed certificates, but uh, no, I kind of want to try this now. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna put it on my list for later this week, and I'm gonna make it work on my local sites, and I'll let you know if it works. You guys are really excellent about taking a, well, let's just say a complex topic of some of something and doing super in-depth posts on it. Um, for anybody that's listening, if you, if you guys don't read and don't subscribe to the Delicious Brains blog, you should because it's really, really excellent. I really like what you do with, like, you said it when you first started talking about creating your own certificate authority. Saying, I don't know how this works. I don't know how to do it. So I did some research so I could write about it. I love yeah. that. Thanks. I mean, that means a lot come from you because, I mean, that's you're like one of the biggest, you know, education guys in, in WordPress. Well, so maybe, uh, maybe it used to be. I don't write much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's right. Pimpsplugins.com, though, I think I think there's probably a lot of developers that probably started their started their education on your articles. So, yeah, it's good stuff. What else have we been up to? Uh MergeBot uh, should be launched now. By the time that this actually gets published, uh, MergeBot, we should have announced it. And MergeBot is kind of, you know, the doors are open. and people So can... I, just, I just popped into the MergeBot.com website and it looks really, really good. You just discovered the secret. It's actually been soft launched for, uh, I think, a week and a half. So, so you've been able to, you know, anyone that stumbles upon MergeBot.com right now can actually sign up and, and buy and buy a subscription and, and use MergeBot. So, yeah, we've, we kind of pushed it out. Uh, Gilbert was going on vacation for two weeks, so we didn't want <laughs> to promote it and then have a bunch of people come to the site and, and not have Gilbert around, right? That would have been uh, kind of a, a silly thing to do, right? You had a pretty long beta period. Uh, I know you've 
talked about it n- numerous times over, over the last 10 to 15 episodes or so. Was that beta period helpful in taking care of a lot of those complex problems? It helped a little bit, not as much as I would have liked. I'm not sure what the problem was there. We had uh, over 100. I can't remember the exact figure. But yeah, we had like a pretty good number of beta users, uh, but not didn't get a lot of feedback and didn't get a ton of use. I feel like if we had a, had a higher price tag on MergeBot, uh, the price was only $9 a month, right? A lot of people, I think, were just not using it and didn't use it, so they couldn't really give us feedback, right? My hope is that now that we're launching and the price tag is higher, if you sign up and use it, uh, maybe then you'll be able to tell us <laughs> what what's not working for you and what needs to be changed. Maybe nothing needs to be. Maybe it's maybe it's good the way it is. Um, but I don't feel like we've gotten enough feedback so far to make a determination on that yet. So part of the motivation to launching is is to get more people using it and uh, and get more feedback and uh, and hopefully you know, shape, mer- you know, push MergeBot in, you know, whatever direction uh, needs to go in. So tell me about the, the system app.mergebot.com and the, uh, the registration system you're using. This is this completely custom. Is this a, a platform? What is this? It's obviously very different from your delicious brains <laughs> setup that a lot of people are used to. What is yeah. this? It's, uh, it's Laravel Spark. So Laravel is a PHP framework. But then there's this kind of package that you can install with it that the guy that's behind Laravel itself, he also wrote this and he sells it. I think it, I, I remember I paid $99 for it. It was ridiculously cheap. <laughs> and yeah, so you buy a, a license for it and plunk it in and it gives you uh, user management. Uh, it integrates with Stripe for your billing. Like it's basically uh, software as a service in a box kind of thing. We have our, you know, a few complaints about it here and there, but overall it's done a great job for us because it saved us loads of time, right? Like not having to build all the, all that stuff, uh, as you know, is, 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 you know, it's a huge time suck to have to build your own user management and e-commerce stuff and oh my God. So yeah, it's been, it's been great overall. Well, super cool. I'm really excited to hear in our upcoming episodes, get updates on how how launch goes. Yeah, yeah. Something that we spun out. So uh, one of the things that we had to build for MergeBot was an editor uh, for serialized data. (laughs) So if you, you, let's say you edit a, um, you edit a widget, you know, uh, just a WordPress widget, on uh, your dev environment and you're using MergeBot and someone edits that same widget on the production site, well, you'll end up with a conflict, right? Because you both edited the same widget and it's in the database is just stored as a serialized uh, string. And so it, it shows up in MergeBot as a conflict. So you have to be able to visualize what has changed in that string and then edit it like to determine like what you want it to deploy as, right? So maybe maybe the person changed the title uh, on the production site, but you actually, when you deploy, you want to change it to something different. Uh, so in Merge, MergeBot, you can actually edit that serialized data and it'll handle like reserializing it and everything. 
So what we did is we spun that out into its own little uh, app. So uh, if you check out serializededitor.com, you can actually paste in some serialized data there and edit it and then get the uh, serialized output of the edited version. Yeah, I've already used that. I used it the other day and it's so handy. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I don't know how many people have tried to manually edit serialized data. It's painful. Ridiculously painful. And most of the time you just totally fail and it doesn't work. I saw this when you guys announced it, uh, I think on Twitter a few weeks ago and just immediately made my heart sing. This makes me so happy. This is just one of those little tools that you don't need it that often, most likely, but when you need it, it's just perfect. Yeah. It's so, yeah, exactly. I I wasn't, I, I got way more excited after I used it. I was like, I had to go to Twitter and like say that I just used it. It's so awesome. Because, <laughs> yeah, otherwise, like if you had to do it manually, oh man, what a pain in the butt. What else have you been up to, Piven? Uh, so I mentioned that we had several big updates in the last few days. And so the second one was the 2.8 release of Easy Digital Downloads of the core plugin. So we made a kind of a commitment earlier this year of trying not to add new features. Like it's, it's so easy in product development to just add new features, add new features, add new features. And we've always tried to be a little bit more reserved on what kind of features we add, but look, we're human and it's very easy when you start to see request after request after request for certain features to just screw it and say, build it. Well, we kind of recommitted ourselves to being a lot more cautious with what we add and to put a couple of releases together that focus purely on refinement. So our previous um, Ease Digital Downloads 2.7 release was the first of these. So that one focused entirely on just trying to polish things, make make the experience better. So it, it, it made a lot of improvements to various screens, it improved some inconsistencies, et cetera. Yes, there were still new features added, but the goal here was still to make improvements to the existing system and solve pain points as opposed to building new features. Well, so E2.8, which was released yesterday, was in the same vein. Sometimes this means that it looks like a lackluster release, but this is actually, these kind of releases are my absolute favorite, I think, because it gives us an opportunity to kind of go back Find, find those nooks and crannies that aren't very good or find those, those eyesores that you're really tired of looking at and fixing them. So we had, we had one particular eyesore that has bothered us for years. We have this feature in EDD called variable prices. Um, and what it really is is that when you create a product, you can have a single price on a product or you can have multiple prices. So, for example, let's say that you want to sell a product that has three price options, a, a basic license, an intermediate license, and an advanced license, or maybe bronze, silver, and gold. And then you want to have a different price point for each one of those. And then if you also happen to be selling subscriptions or license keys, you might also then need to say, okay, this one recurs monthly, this one recurs yearly, this one recurs yearly, but has an additional sign-up fee, this one has a license activation limit of zero, of one, and then this one is up to five sites, and this one is up to 30 sites, etc. 
those kinds of options for price options uh, for the variable prices feature really had a terrible UI. Because when variable prices were first introduced, it was this repeatable table row where you have two input fields. You have the name of your price option, say bronze, and then the price of your price option. That's it, there's two fields. Well, as we add more features to ED Core and to, to various add-ons, you suddenly get a third input field. So maybe an option to set what is the default price option that is selected when the page loads. Then you get an option, you introduce a feature into your licensing plugin that allows you to sell a lifetime license. Then you introduce a recurring payments plugin that allows you to say, is this price option a recurring option? Yes or no. Okay, how often does this recur? How many times should this be billed? What is the signup fee? And all of these options, because the original design used a table, all have to fit within one table row just due to the constraints of the original design. There's a blog post in the show notes that you can, you can see a screenshot of, but basically what ended up happening is all of these options just got crushed together on smaller screens. So if you had, if you had anything smaller than say a 22 or 24 inch monitor, this interface was just janky and, and jagged and not good at all. It also meant that it was super inflexible for creating a better experience, like separating out your license key settings from your recurring payment settings from the default standard settings inside of EDD Core. Well, we decided to fix all of this. So we, we went about it and we've tried to fix this for two years now. And there's a reason that it was super tricky and I'll get to that in a moment. So we first tackled and said, look, let's just take all of these options that we have on this screen and just design them into a layout that we like. Let's just do that and we'll figure out how to manage backwards compatibility from there. So here's the kicker. There was no way to take that data, which was, so all it was was a table row and then a whole bunch of table cells. So every input option was basically a cell within the table. Well, tables are super inflexible when it comes to your CSS layouts. So you can't stack cells on top of each other. You can't float one to the left, float one to the right, position one over here. No, they're gonna be in a line. That's just the way that tables work because it's, well, it's a table. That's what it's supposed to do. So we made this mistake of putting all this data in tables originally. So why was this a problem? Why can't we just get rid of the table? Well, the problem is that we had a lot of extensions, a minimum of five, that were very heavily used that all registered their own options inside of this interface. Well, we didn't have a formal API for how to add those options to the interface. Literally adding an option to the interface was a do action call and you just echoed your own table cell and your own input fields into the table. And then it just shows up. So there's no formal API. All it is is a do action just echoing out HTML. So we had two options. We either had to completely break sites for people that if you update EDD core, but then you don't update an extension, or maybe that extension hasn't even been updated for compatibility yet. We didn't want to have this broken HTML where you've got new HTML for core and you've got old broken table cells being injected into a non-table now because an extension has been updated. We wanted it to be completely seamless and just work even if they've never updated an extension. So we made it magically work. 
we built a backwards compatibility layer that detect it looks at all of our actions inside of this area and it rewrites all of the HTML on the fly. Um, so oh, it, see, it strips out like TD tags for what divs or something? Divs and spans. It look it looks for specific. Uh, HTML tags and structures and it also we did do some very specific targeting like we wrote a backwards compatibility JavaScript file that all it does is look for some known HTML from the extensions and rewrites it on the fly adds and removes class names and so the fun thing now is that you can update to EDD 2.8 which does not use any tables for this interface and you can be using an older version of software licensing that is injecting tables into this interface, and there's no tables on the on the page. They're all gone. It took a while to make it work, but it works seamlessly. We looked at this with, okay, we have our extensions that we know about, and we have the ones that we control. We could just go ahead and update them all at the same time and push out updates simultaneously. If anybody experiences a breakage, we just say, hey, you got to make sure that you update both of them. But what about all the, the extensions we don't know about? What about the developers that have done this for custom client sites? Like what if they've added their own options, which we know people have? We're gonna ignore those? No, that's not an acceptable answer in, in my opinion. So we said, no, we have to fix it. We have to make every extension automatically work, even if they're not updated. And so that's what we ended up with. And so that's why two, this version of 2.8 is really exciting to me because it took, that, took a challenge like that. It made the UI a whole lot better and it made it a lot, flex, a lot more flexible. So even if you're, an extension is using the old HTML structure, it still gets rewritten into the new structure. And there is now a more formal uh, method for how you're supposed to register your settings and how you can for anybody that wants to use it going forward. That was a pretty fun little challenge. It was it was one of those ones where you have uh, you get you get working on it and you're trying to figure out how do you solve it and then you get completely stuck and you just kind of throw your hands up like, well, we're screwed, we're doomed, and then you 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 feel like you have a little epiphany of, wait, I can do this, <laughs> and it worked. So it was pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, it looks it looks great. By the way, it looks much it's, much it's, nicer now. It's pretty fun to to play with it like knowing behind the scenes that like <laughs> that plugin totally tried to output a table and it's not there. It is not on the page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Well done. You guys have been working on a couple of updates, I believe for a long time now with migrate DB pro. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, we've, uh, kind of been struggling a bit. So we started about nine months ago on this release. <laughs> So it's it's definitely goes against our target this year. It was to release at most every four months. And so we're way over that now. Um, and it's totally my fault. What So this release of MigrateDB is, uh, the focus of it is the import feature. So MigrateDB Pro is gonna have an import feature. You're gonna be able to import an SQL file that's that's your migration. It'll replace. You know that would have been great if you had that last week when I had to import my uh, export file from WMigrateDB Pro. <laughs> no, that's awesome. That is a that is a great great feature. Yeah. So Matt, who uh, has built that feature before for uh, the plugin that that he built and we acquired, uh, Better Search Replace, 
he he was working on that. But basically, I was thinking, oh, Matt's built this before. I'm just gonna give it, just say, Matt, go build this, and and that'll be enough, right? And that's that's what I did. Like I didn't I didn't ask him to scope it out and work with us together to figure out like what what's the kind of MVP, what's the minimum viable product here, what's the the kind of the the smallest scope we can do for the first release. And I think that's that's why we're nine months in now because we didn't scope it out in the beginning, so the scope kind of just ballooned gradually, and it wasn't it was not managed right, right? So that's that's why. Um, and, and it's actually one massive pull request. <laughs> so instead of like you know scoping it and doing very little bit, and then doing a pull request, merging it in to uh, the master. Like we did try to do, do it all in one big PR. And so, and the good news is that we've learned from this and this will, this shouldn't happen again. I'm certainly not gonna make assumptions and just say, you know, here, just, you know, build whatever. I mean, that's that's silly. In retrospect, it's it seems really dumb that I, that I did that. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. So what are you gonna do? <laughs> as long as you learn from it. Yeah, I think that we, we've made that same mistake a few times, both with just a, hey, just go build this um, without much scope or anything laid out. And then we've also made that same mistake where you get everything in one big PR and then you realize we literally cannot, like you can't take this out without removing everything and you cannot finish the release until this is done because it's all together. Piecemealing things we learned that the hard way a couple of times that, oh my gosh, if you can do things in smaller chunks, it saves so much headache in the future. The other mistake we made was like assigning the whole thing to one developer. Uh, we're we're going to try more of a collaborative approach, even though something looks like a unit and, and is not really fit for more than one person. We're going to really try and have two people work on it anyway. That's that's something we're gonna experiment with our, in our next release. Um, I mean, the fear is that they're gonna step on each other's toes, and you know, there's gonna be a lot of merging that's gonna be needed. But um, the alternative is that one person toils away <laughs> for a really long, really long time uh, before they actually have something to show, right? And then there's the whole bus factor, right? If that, if that developer gets hit by a bus and then no one knows what the heck they were working on and that kind of thing. So is, is that something you guys do? Do you do you try to, I mean, obviously you're gonna try break things up as much as possible, but when you have a chunk that's pretty large, do you, does, it, does it just go to one developer still? Uh, it depends on the project. Uh, I think we're probably better about not putting it on one developer in EDD than we are the other two projects. And, and I think some of that is just because EDD being, EDD is where we started having a collaborative environment first. Like we've had it as a collaborative environment longer than either of the other two. And so it just naturally, we've adapted to that better. So I get, we, have two, we have two developers on Affiliate WP. We have two, um, two developers on Restricted Content Pro. And then we really have two full developers on EDD. So we really have two on each. I would say most of the time it's it's one project per developer, but 
Um, I try to encourage that there is continual review and assessment from each other. Like, okay, so, so here, here's one of my number one rules um, for, for our team is that nobody should ever be working in a vacuum. I don't care if it is a tiny thing or a giant thing. If you are working in a vacuum is probably one of the easiest ways for us to get into trouble because, uh, okay, so we have, we've had an example where we had a feature being worked on for months and we had to throw it, we pretty much had to throw it all away because it, it was being done in a vacuum and it came out and it wasn't like it was supposed to be. It didn't work how we needed it to work. And there was total lack of communication. And it, it was it was really my fault for not managing it properly. But it but it did it did happen. Uh, and so you have that if you have that lack of communication, it's very easy for that to happen. So no vacuums. That's like my number one rule now. So what about uh, restrict content pro two point nine? Let's, yes, so that's our other that. major update. And and this one is it's actually a really big update that has a ton of stuff, but it it did have a couple of it had a one very significant challenge um, and then a lot mostly this is a this is another polish and new feature release. And and really we're 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 getting in and trying to add in some of those features that we've needed to have in for a long time. So for example, we now support notifying subscribers before their subscription renews. Give a subscription courtesy reminder. That's something that we have never had. We now have that. We added in an option to restrict complete post types. So we would have a lot of people that would come to us. They would have a site that they want to set up a membership on or they already had a membership, but they had a big catalog of data and they want to say, well, every tutorial in my tutorials post type needs to be restricted. And the bulk options that you guys offer don't work for me. And so they wanted the ability to just say, this post type is restricted. We've now added that. And then we've also had this big limitation for a long time with user roles. So we've always supported restricting content to user roles, but only the default user roles within WordPress. If you had a custom user role, didn't work. Um, we've now fixed that and you can now use any registered user role and you can restrict content to any of them. There's a couple of other little um, improvements, but there's one major one that it's kind of funny. This release is actually about two to three months behind when it was supposed to go out. We had started this as, hey, this is going to be our one month turnaround release. We're going to fix a bunch of little things, just do some quick polish and it's going to ship it. And three and a half months later, we're not shipped. <laughs> so what happened is we have a payments database and thankfully this one already uses custom tables. Uh, so there's no migration there. But it had some limitations. It had, uh, it never, it, it didn't have any way of handling, say, a pending payment record. So it only kept track of completed payments and refunded payments. But the idea of having a payment that has been started but is not completed didn't exist in RCP. Turn, turns out that adding support for that was really, really tricky when you're, when you're dealing with a large historical data set. Because then basically we, we discovered that we had to add in a huge backwards compatibility layer that says, okay, what if, what if you access an old payment record that doesn't have a status set on it? What if you try to insert a payment record from a custom gateway that somebody has developed that doesn't know that you're supposed to be storing a payment status now? What is the default status? Is there a way that we can detect it? How can we set it? What should it be set to? We ended up discovering a lot of those kind of edge cases where we had to support people that have used custom gateways. Because there's a lot of custom gateways available for RCP and a lot of people have built their own for client sites. 
that we don't know about. RCP has been around for almost seven years. And so there's a lot of sites that have been running for a long time. And we had to make sure all of those continued to work as we were making these changes to the database tables. And not only that their data was still good, but that the old way that they were creating the data, aka the payment records, was still valid. And so we actually did a couple things. We added a, we added the support for pending statuses. Uh, we added disk, like we now, when you, <laughs> this seems really simple that we should have done this, but we never used to keep a record of when you used a discount code on a subscription. Seems kind of silly, but we didn't. That's now used. Our payment records used to be stored with a subscription name. So let's let's say that you have bronze, gold, and silver as your subscription levels. We would store the name of a subscription level as opposed to the ID of the subscription level, which meant if you ever went and changed the name, it broke the relationship. So that was annoying. That's now been fixed. And there was a few other things. So really the RCP 2.9 release is, there's three really nice new features but then it is a ton of polish. I think we had a total of like 24 bugs and 19 distinct improvements that we made. Now that it's out, we're really, really, we're confident that it's, it's, it's stable. Now, actually, we haven't released it yet. We released a beta, and here in a week or so, we will release the final version of it. We've been busy, I know you guys have been busy, and uh, anyway, we'll have probably quite a bit more to share next time uh, here in, we'll probably have another I'll probably be talking about database migrations for the next four months, just to get forward. <laughs> yeah, nice. All uh, right. Yeah, if anybody's interested in sponsoring the podcast, you can check out applyfilters.fm and click on the sponsorship link. And we've got all the info in there for you. Yeah, we've got sponsorship spots open, so and we would yeah, be more you, than happy to work with you. So if you have a WordPress yep. product, a WordPress service, uh, or anything like it, let us know for sure. Thanks, everybody. All right, thanks for listening, everybody.